Hello and welcome back to the Kentucky Resilience Lab. I'm Michaela and we have another special interview episode for you this week. In today's episode, I sit down with a dear friend and former teammate, Skylar Baylor, to talk about his personal journey as the first openly trans athlete to compete for a Division I men's NCAA team. No introduction can really do him justice, so let's just get right into the interview. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited today to be joined by a former college teammate on the swimming and diving team, but a lot more importantly, a great friend, Skylar Baylor. So welcome, Skylar. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's good to, good to be here. Of course. So first, if you don't mind, let's start off with your journey and talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today. For those listening, you and I actually first met the winter of our senior years, or actually my senior year of high school, your gap year. Um, and when we met, you were recruited to be a member of the Harvard Women's Swimming and Diving team. And then fast forward to the fall of both of our freshman years of college, you were a member of Harvard Men's Swimming and Diving team. Yeah. So, um, gosh, that takes me back to that, that <laughs> day in Blodgett. I, for, I almost forgot about that. Um, yeah. So my, my name is Skylar. I use he, him pronouns. I'm 24. Uh, I'm the first trans athlete to compete for a Division One men's team. Uh, in college. So that's kind of where I bring most of my advocacy work from. And um, yeah, you met me before that happened or before that switch occurred. Uh, I was definitely in the process of figuring that out at the time. And I think that was evident in lots of different ways. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so over the past four years since, um, since switching teams, um, I guess actually now it's been five or six years, um, I, I've spent a lot of work or, or time doing advocacy work. I, I do a lot of body positivity, um, eating disorder, mental health treatment, um, trans inclusion in sports, but also elsewhere, and sort of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion work in pretty much any space, but focusing in schools, uh, corporations, and businesses, and conferences. Um, so that's how, how I show up in the world. I'm trying to think if anything else is relevant. I mean, my swim, my swim career is probably the biggest thing that's relevant, especially to this, this podcast um, and this conversation. So um, yeah, swimming's been the biggest part of my life for as long as I can remember. Um, I learned how to swim when I was before one, so around 10 months, um, and I competed for 18 years, um, and four of those were at Harvard. Wow. I, well, first of all, all of that is relevant because it's all part of how you got here. But I guess first, can we go back a little bit to what you talked about swimming and how that's always been a part of you? And like all sports, but swimming especially, it's very evident. Everything is so gendered. You are sure. in a bathing suit. Everything is exposed. So I guess kind of as you were coming to the realization that you were trans in high school, I believe it was in high school, I guess maybe in your gap year, how did that affect your swimming and how... Did your swimming affect your transition in general? Yeah, so I realized that I was trans, uh, you're correct, in my gap year. Uh, before I had come out, I was really struggling with mental health. I, at the end of my, my high school, actually most of my high school career, I spent fairly miserable. I was really struggling with an eating disorder. I was struggling with depression and some other maladaptive coping mechanisms and just kind of circling the drain, honestly. I really didn't know how to handle what I was feeling. I think swimming was part of what kept me afloat, honestly, which is kind of funny to think about in a lot of different ways. Uh, but because it was the thing that 
gave me purpose. It was the thing that allowed me to keep, I mean, to honestly, honestly to stay. Uh, however, it was also very confusing because like you said, it is very gendered. I think in high school, I departed from the gendering of it in my head in a lot of ways by just saying like, this is how it is. I, I didn't see it as any, I just was like, I have to swim. And this is how I show up at swim practice. And this is the uniform that I wear. And this is like how it is. And I never really questioned that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more outside of swimming where gender was hard for me, especially bathrooms uh, where when I, especially I, I presented as male for a lot of middle school, I was bullied constantly because I went into the girl's bathroom and looked quote unquote like a boy. And that was just like such a stressful experience for me. Um, so when I got to high school, that was sort of one of the impetuses for my hyper feminization that I experienced or that I underwent with myself in high school was because I was so sick of being bullied for being too boyish. Mm-hmm. Um, but me hyper feminizing also was me running away from myself in a lot of ways. And I think that's what elicited a lot of the mental health issues that I had um, that I wasn't conscious of. Like I didn't, I wasn't able to explain that. I wasn't sitting there being like, Oh, I'm trans. And this is what's making me upset. I was just like, Mm -hmm. I'm miserable. So I took a gap year to deal with that mental health stuff. And that's why I ended up being in your class and not a year above you. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I figured out, oh, this is, I'm trans. And this is what explains so much of how I've been disconnected with myself and the world. Um, But figuring out that I was trans is also a panic attack, essentially, because I was like, what the heck am I going to do about swimming? Because as you said, and as everybody knows, swimming is really gendered. And not only is it super gendered, but also the gap between performance levels is vast. Um, in order to even make Olympic trials for men, you have to beat every single woman that has ever swum ever, which is like bonkers, right? There's, there's a huge gap between performance. So I also thought not only do I have to deal with whatever this means, but even if I compete as male, I'm going to have to catch up a lot. Uh, and is that even possible? So, um, yeah, in, in those ways, I think it was it was really, really terrifying for me. Um, but the coaches at Harvard, so Steph, the women's coach, and Kevin, the men's coach, were very, very accepting and very willing to walk through, like, what would be the best process. And I think nobody knew, but they offered me the opportunities to figure that out. And Kevin even offered me a spot on the men's team and was, like, welcoming me there. And mm-hmm. regardless of my medical transition, he was like, you can even swim on the men's team even if you don't take testosterone or whatever, which was mm-hmm. just this, like, option giving, you know, mm-hmm. and allowed me to think, okay, so maybe let me think about this more. <laughs> like, let me investigate yeah. the gender and figure out whether or not I'm ready for that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot in there. But I guess kind of touching upon what you were talking about with the swimming, the discrepancy between the times for men and women, you were a top recruit for the class coming out of 2014, coming out of high school. And so I'm sure I know we've talked about this before. That was part of your thought process was, you know, mm-hmm. be a top recruit and be unhappy in college or kind of be true to yourself. So I guess, how did you adjust mentally to that new swimming reality of no longer being one of the best and having to kind of climb your way back up. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that was actually one of the biggest limiting factors was I remember trying to make the decision. I actually, maybe you and I even talked about it a little bit. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was, I I was probably the top recruit in my class for a hundred breaststroke at the time. And, um, and staff made it very clear that that was, she was really, so staff's a women's coach, right. For people who are listening, um, but that, (laughs) that, that that was um, that she was losing, right? A breaststroker if I had transitioned. 
but she also made it very clear she wanted me to be happy and she was like fast swimmers are happy swimmers right and mm-hmm. if you're if you're miserable like I, that's not going to be productive um mm-hmm. but i was i did think well i've been fast up until now and i've been miserable up until now so why wouldn't i continue <laughs> to be miserable and win all these medals and see how that went and um mm-hmm. you know i was seated to potentially break records at harvard and go to ncaa's and do all these kinds of things and people had very high aspirations for my athletic um uh, success and i did too and swimming as a man would be just instantly shattering all of those potential successes. Because even if I competed well as a man, I would still never be on the women's record board. Right? I would still <laughs> never be at women's NCs. So um, I, I, I actually, the, the sort of pivotal moment for me was a conversation I had with my dad in which he said, Skylar, you're, you're, you're so focused on all of these potential accolades that you want to get as a female athlete or competing as a woman but you have all of those, like you've already, you've already gotten all these records and, um, and gold medals and successes and recruitment to Harvard. And you told me explicitly that they don't mean anything to you because you're so miserable. So who is to say that you go to Harvard and you make all these records there that they mean anything to you because you're not you. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there and thinking like, wow, crap, <laughs> like, maybe that isn't it for me. Right. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it is, maybe it's more important to be happy. But I think a lot of people don't grow up and this world doesn't raise kids to believe that happiness is like a number one priority. It's success. It's, it's what I call paper successes, things you can mm-hmm. write down on a piece of paper and hand them to somebody like, this is what I've done. Right. Yeah. Um, but departing from that in that moment and basically being like, okay, I'm going to take the risk. Like I'm going to, I'm going to take the risk to potentially suck at swimming, having been mm-hmm. really good my whole life um, and be happy for the first time in mm-hmm. my life. Right. Um, and so that, that's kind of what went into that decision. That's awesome. And I love, I mean, a a bunch of parts of what you said about that. But I think what's cool for me is that because I met you while you were kind of in the process of transitioning, but before you had really made the decision, or at least openly, Mm -hmm. um, I noticed a difference in your happiness just from when we first met to when we arrived Mm -hmm. on campus in the fall. And it's just awesome to see that you had people in your circle who were there supporting you and helping you in what is an incredibly, obviously difficult and challenging decision to make. There is one thing that you said that really resonated with me, and that was when you talked about paper successes. And I think there are a lot of athletes who have experienced getting stuck in a cycle of achieving at a high level and winning meets or winning games and playing at the top of their game or swimming at the top of their game. But they're not really feeling that sense of fulfillment or they're not getting that from their sport. What was ultimately the thing for you that helped you to get to a place where you were striving for more than just paper successes? I guess, what advice would you give either to your former self or to another athlete to get out of a place where you're just striving for the titles or for the medals? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think there's you know, there's a multi, it's a multifaceted, of course, because I think that people do glean happiness through achieving their goals and getting medals and doing things that I would consider paper successes, right? And I don't think that those are bad necessarily. And I'm, I love paper successes. I've like built my <laughs> life around them in many ways. But when it comes down to like our core happiness, and when I think about core happiness, I think about identity. And I think about like, I think about love, honestly. Um, this might get a little like soft, but I think that those are the <laughs> things that we don't, we should not compromise for. Mm-hmm. And when we do, we compromise ourselves. And there's a difference between compromising of like, oh, I really wanna go hang out with my friend and have a nice time um, and then miss swim practice versus mm-hmm. like, oh, if I, if I compete as this, uh, you know, in the gender I was assigned, like I miss my life and I miss my, yeah. 
right? Two mm-hmm. different things. And it, those are extreme examples. And I think there's lots of gray area in between. But I think for me, it's really, it's about that kind of line of like, what is, what is me compromising like my identity and my humanity mm-hmm. um, and, and like my long-term happiness? And let's actually mm-hmm. change happiness from happiness to like, um, I want my life to resonate with me. Like I want, I want I my life to, to, to be something that I'm proud of, that I feel mm-hmm. like I'm connected to. And I really, mm-hmm. I love the word resonate because I literally think about like when a sound resonates around a room and it like feels good. Do you know what I mean? Like that moment. And oh, yeah. I want my life to feel like that. And mm-hmm. if I miss a practice here and there, okay. Or, you know, if I have to miss something fun so that I can do something that eventually is going to resonate with me, like great. Mm-hmm. And if I had competed as female, I think in college, I think my life would have felt like it wasn't resonating with me. Um, and I think we can apply that to lots of different people and places and like uh, experiences. And I asked myself the question of like, how do I want to look back on, on this? Like, how do I want to mm-hmm. feel about it? Because, and it's honestly like, and this is something I apply everywhere. It's like, what will I regret? Because yeah. if I go forwards from, again, let's go back to the decision of, of gender and teams. Like, will I regret having not been myself for four years? Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, I mean, and it's not just four years. Like that would have been solidified forever. I would have always yeah. been have I always have swum on the women's team, right? And I would mm-hmm. have always explained that as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, will I regret that, or will I regret not getting these gold medals? Like, will will mm-hmm. I sit there in thirty years and be like, gosh, I, I, you know, I wish I had gone these gold medals? Um, yeah. And I ended up thinking like, I'm I'm gonna regret feeling like crap for four years, right? Like, yeah. I'm not gonna. That's not gonna work for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's the right decision for everybody. Like other people do make the opposite decision that I do as a trans person. Mm-hmm. Like they elect to compete as the gender they were assigned. And I think it's great. If that works for you, awesome. If that resonates, mm-hmm. with you, great. Um, but it's really about asking the question of like, how do you want to look back on your life? And what, what are you mm-hmm. going to regret? And what's going to resonate with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can be applied to like everything. I agree. I think finding what resonates with you is really so, such a great message. And I think it's such a tangible concept to understand and I guess kind of diving more specifically into this moment so take us back a little bit you're on the blocks at your first meet of college about to start your first race mm-hmm. what was going through your head obviously it's it was a little while ago now but it just in terms of now you're no longer swimming just to out touch the person next to you now you're swimming for very different goals and very different reasons so I guess how you know what was going through your head Sure. at that time yeah honestly i can't remember the blocks before that race but i remember so clearly the national anthem so i always talk about this like when i was standing there and you know they they walk us out one at a time it's that you, your name goes up on the jumbotron you got that picture it's like a really like mm-hmm. intense and cool and like induction onto the team right yeah um, you walk out one at a time on my last name is the beast i'm first i'm alone all by myself like i'm panicking <laughs> Uh, and I remember walking out and standing with all the guys at the edge of the pool. And I, I started crying when the national anthem was played. And I, I really, like, I really was tearing up and I was like, come on, Skylar, come on, keep it together, keep it together. Um, but I had this moment where I thought, you know, everything feels so new and so different, but also this is exactly the same thing I've been doing my entire life. Like the pool hasn't changed at all. You know, mm-hmm. every pool is a pool filled with chlorine that like makes you cough. Right. Um, so I was standing there and I remember thinking that and then I was like, but actually this is different because for the first time in my entire life, I'm really just myself in my, in my like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it native habitat, but like yeah. my place, like the pool is like mm-hmm. where I grew up and where I found all of myself. And to be there in that moment in a speedo with my teammates was just like such a moment for me to be able to feel like myself. Um, so when I got up on the blocks, I think 
there was that gravitas, if you will. Mm -hmm. There was also an immense pressure to do well. Because if I didn't, I thought I was going to flop for all of trans athletes. It was like, if I couldn't keep up, if I looked like a fool or something, like let's say I'd lost by like five seconds, which I did not, but if if I did, um, (laughs) I was so afraid that it was like, oh, that's just the trans guy, you know? Oh, he can't can't keep up or whatever. Or or, that's a woman, right? Of course, he can't, whatever. Um, And so I felt like I had to prove not only to myself that I was capable, but also to Mm -hmm. the world, Um, especially because the world was watching. (laughs) People were recording that. So I, that was kind of the two, the two sides of this, this intense sort of gravitas meaning moment, meaning making of a moment. Yeah. And then also this feeling of like, if I don't do this, like it's not just me who gets upset. Like it's the world who can yeah. kind of watch this. Um, so yeah, um, it, it, I, I didn't feel like I had to win in the same way. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like, and I also didn't feel capable of winning. Like I wasn't like, oh, mm-hmm. let me go like drop 10 seconds in my 100 flight yeah. unheard of. <laughs> um, but I was like, I need to not lose. <laughs> Um, and that was how I worked through freshman year. This kind of goes with sports psychology, um, which is I, I shifted my goals immensely when I started mm-hmm. training on the men's team. And it was no longer I'm trying to win. I'm trying to lead the lane. I'm trying to get first. It wasn't that at all. It was I'm trying to beat myself and I'm trying to not be the slowest. So I would pick mm-hmm. like somebody on the team who wasn't good at something. And I'd be like, let me try to be faster than you. Right. And it wasn't yeah. about that person. And, you know, this is how swimming works. Right. It was all about just trying yeah. to be not the worst. And that was my goal. It was like, it's not trying to be the best and it's not be the worst. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'm going to be the worst and sometimes I'm not, but let's work mm-hmm. through that first and then kind of ratchet up from there because yeah. I couldn't start being like, I need to win. There's just like, that's just an impossible mm-hmm. goal. Um, and I didn't get to a place where I was winning anything anyways. Um, but I did get to a place where I was a little bit more middle of the pack. Where I didn't suck mm-hmm. where I made some cuts for certain things. And so that was kind of like how I, how I took it in a, in a mental way. If that makes sense you're asking the questions for me. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I think, no, 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 that's great. I mean, I think that's so, it's such an important skill just for anyone of kind of reframing your goals when something major happens. And especially I think for your situation in order to kind of refine your, not necessarily refine it, but to maintain your love for swimming, your goals had to change because you were now in a different scenario in your swimming career. And something that you mentioned in talking about all that was how now you had all this weight on you because you were trans and you were the first D1 trans athlete in the NCAA, everyone's eyes were on you. So I guess um, not only are you a freshman collegiate student athlete with all the demands that that comes with, but you're also an Ivy League student. So there's a high demand on you academically. And then also you're now this public figure because you're a voice for a lot of people who didn't have voices and this image for a lot of people who didn't have anyone to look up to before, which is an honor, but also a huge responsibility. So how did you balance all that? I mean, all the publicity, you were on 60 Minutes our freshman year, I believe. Um, How did you balance that with also just having time for yourself and all the other things you had on your plate? Yeah, Um, the, the honest answer is I absolutely did not balance it. Uh, I think a lot of people thought I did. I think I did a good job pretending I did, <laughs> um, but I definitely didn't. And I, I think I even pretended to myself. Like, I think had you asked me the same question freshman year, I probably would have said, everything's fine. Maybe not you specifically, because you and I talked about a lot of things freshman year, but most <laughs> yeah. people who asked me, uh, you know, in an interview standpoint, freshman year, I would have said, yeah, I just, I'm really good at you know getting things done, which is true. I am. 
Um, but I, I definitely, a lot of things suffered. Um, mm -hmm. I think my sleep suffered immensely my freshman year. Um, I think my performance in the pool suffered in, in some, some ways as well, because mm -hmm. the pressure was, was great and I wasn't sleeping enough to compete well. Um, mm -hmm. I think that my relationship suffered in many ways. I think I um, wasn't as good of a friend as I could have been in some situations. So um, I think that my, oh, and also lastly, my school sucked. <laughs> Like I did not do very well in school my freshman year. Um, that was a conscious decision. I was like, this is just not a priority to me, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. I just didn't prioritize much of my schoolwork because my swimming and my advocacy and my friends were, were things that I wanted to prioritize over school. And I, um, I was able to do decently enough without that. Mm -hmm. But my answer is that I, I didn't balance. And I think um, the sort of lesson from that for me was one, it's okay not to balance everything perfectly all the time. And I think I thought that I had to, um, and that's kind of why I, I, I portrayed it as if I did. Um, mm -hmm. But I think college is also all about, no matter who you are, no matter how many things you have to do, and I definitely had a lot to do, <laughs> um, I think, and you did too. I mean, a lot, lots of people overload themselves in college. I think it's about, I think it's about learning boundaries and learning how to say no when you want to say no or when you should say no. And it's also about learning how to say yes when you should say yes or when you really want to say yes. I think mm -hmm. both of those are equally important because there were times in college where like, I remember my sweet mates got back from something like kind of late. It was like maybe 10 PM and I had just been doing work all day and I should have continued doing work or so I thought, and they were like, we're going salsa dancing. And I was like, when am I <laughs> going to have time to go salsa dancing at 10 PM with my roommates, like at a random time in the middle of the night, like never. So yes, let's go. You know, and I prioritized <laughs> that instead of the reading that I was supposed to have done. And I don't say this to like, encourage all the listeners to like not um do work when they should but it's more that like i i was a conscious decision i made to prioritize something that was going to be fun and to be like i'll skim the reading later you know um and i think that was key for me in college and what i learned especially after freshman year was like sometimes i don't balance things sometimes i choose to prioritize something that that i that i maybe quote shouldn't especially by what like mm -hmm. school would want me to do and that's a that's a conscious decision that i make um and i think that's really important like be intentional about those decisions mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's, especially in college and when you have all those demands on you, you do need to learn kind of what the, what to say yes and no to for you. And that's different than from what it is for other people, you know, and yeah. um, I think that that's hard to learn. And sometimes it takes some of us like me uh, until senior year to figure that out, but, or I'm you're still, still figuring it out. <laughs> I know. Actually, I, I take that back. I'm still figuring that out, but I, I think that that's such an important skill to learn. I think it's also super trial and error, you know, like I think yeah. when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, therefore you'll just make a conscious decision every time and it'll be great. Like, no, I messed it up many times where I was like, like, uh, for example, I had to withdraw from a class. I think I told you about that during the time, mm -hmm. but I had to completely withdraw from a class because I was literally failing it because I just didn't do the work. Mm -hmm. And that was not a good decision. I shouldn't have done that. I should have prioritized yeah. that class. And I recognize that. And after that, I actually started focusing a lot more on school to finish out the year, but it's okay. I guess what I'm trying to share, and I think especially, you know, coming from Harvard, I think it's easy to feel like we have to do everything perfectly. And like, how can you not get everything done? And like, oh, of course, like I am in, you know, all these things and a finals club and I go do work outside and I go volunteer and I'm like an athlete, like, and everything. And I'm, uh -huh, I'm a straight A student, of course. Everything, and my mental health is great. I sleep eight hours a night. I drink eight liters of water every day. I think great. Like it's bullshit, <laughs> right? Um, and I think it's okay to show that it's not like that and also okay mm -hmm. to like, oh crap, I made the wrong decision, right? And instead of being like, wow, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible student. I'm awful. I'm whatever, whatever. Being like, oh, okay, noted. <laughs> Let me incorporate that into next time, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Rewinding a little bit to swimming and 
mindset or not just mindset, but I guess what mental skills besides reframing your goals did you use in your swimming career? Just once you reframed your, your goals, then you still had to go about and achieve your new goals and kind of accomplish what you set out to accomplish with this new environment you found yourself in. Yeah. I mean, I think like my new goals were not nearly as regimented as my old goals were. Um, I never really liked setting like specific time goals either for swimming. I Mm -hmm. kind of was like, I want to get a better time. And so those are still goals were still best times, but Mm -hmm. those to me are not about sitting and focusing on what exactly I wanted to go. It was more about like, I need to train and I need to take care of my shoulders. So for those of you who are listening, I have terrible shoulders. And so I had spent a lot of time in college in the training room with like PT for my body. And so it was about like literally like breaking things down. And so I guess my answer to your question, uh, I think in, in as generally as it can be is no, no task is one task. All, all things, all goals are a, a myriad of smaller tasks. And I think you can break down every single task to a breath, honestly, mm-hmm. breathing through a specific moment. And I don't mean that in like a meditative or like yogic way, although that works too. But I literally mean like if, if something is ever too much, break it down. I think it's super easy to see anything, especially in sports, as overwhelming. Um, and the way I explain this is by thinking about like a specific swim set, for example. So if we have mm-hmm. to do, you know, 20 repeats of a hundred yard race, um, and mm-hmm. we do this in, in high school all the time. And I would look at that set and be like, there's no freaking way. Like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd be like, okay, just do one. Like, let's just mm-hmm. do one and then we'll quit after that. So I do one and then I maybe I do two because another people are pushing off the walls. I have to kind of get through it. Maybe make it to like five or six. I'm like, okay, I've done five or six, like, no, let's just get to halfway. Like, let's just do half, mm-hmm. right? And so I get to halfway. And maybe when I get there, like, I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're here. Like, I guess I can do like a couple more at this point, mm-hmm. right? maybe like five more. Then do a couple more. And then like, now I'm getting really tired. And so I'm like, I don't even know, it, you know, maybe I'm number like 16, 17. I'm like, I can't even do a whole one. So let me just like, I'm going to do half, right? I'm going to do a 50. But then I do a 50. I'm like, okay, I can finish the second 50. Mm-hmm. And my point is like, you keep breaking it down. So at some point, maybe I don't feel like I can get across the pool. So maybe it's just yeah. taking a stroke. Maybe it's literally just getting my arm out of the water, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And it's breaking it down to just that one stroke, just that one breath. And I can always take one more breath. I can always take one more stroke. Mm-hmm. And I think about that everywhere. Um, I think about that with swimming, I, and I, that's honestly how I got through every single practice ever, <laughs> especially when I wasn't in the mood. I'd be like, how the heck am I doing this? I'm like, just, just kind of take a couple strokes, see how it feels. But I do that with my days. So when I had really busy days, which is always, I just am like, all right, I'm just going to do the next thing. So right now, you know, I have back-to-back calls from all day. Um, and I was, I mean, I've been tired. I didn't sleep a lot last night. So I was like, okay, you know what? Like, I'm just here right now. I'm going to finish this call. And after this, I'm going to tell my next call. I'm going to cancel. I'm going to take a nap. I'm not going to do that. But in my head, that allows mm-hmm. me to stay here right now. Mm-hmm. And it allows me to get through this. And then when this is over, I'm probably going to be able to be like, okay, I have energy for the next thing. That's fine. You know, and we'll get through the next thing and eventually I'll be done. Um, but I think that is the way I reframed everything in college as well was like, it isn't, I am not, you know, going to do all these speeches. I'm not going to do all these meets. I'm not doing like this whole class. I'm literally just doing whatever's in front of me now. And there's planning of course, to write, write things out, but I always encourage people to break it down into the small bites. And I think that is like the biggest psychological tool that I've ever used is like, let's not look at it as this, as this one, um, like, unbreakable goal, right? Let's look at it as all its tiny parts and let's give ourselves like positive feedback for doing those tiny things, right? So if the goal is to write an essay, give yourself a point for sitting down at the desk, right? Give yourself a point for getting out of bed. Maybe like, maybe that's not the thing. 
give yourself yeah. a point for opening the word document, right? All those things are things that you have to do in order to get the, the goal done. Um, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, so I think, yeah, breaking it down is really the key. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, again, a great skill for sports and a great skill for whatever task you find you're do yourself doing. I think breaking things down into smaller bits is huge and makes it seem a lot less daunting. Yeah. So one of my last questions, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here, but what is one piece of advice that you would give your younger athlete self or just your younger self in general, kind of knowing what you know now of kind of you've gone through your career, I guess, what's just one thing that your younger self needed to hear that you wish you could go back and tell yourself? Yeah, I always answer this question the same way, which is if I could go talk to my younger self, I would just I tell him he's got it. Like, I think that when we're younger, we know a whole lot more about our emotional selves than we do when we grow up. And as we grow up, we learn all the things that we're supposed to be. We learn all the people that other people want us to be. And we learn all these rules about who we have to be. Um, but I think when we're younger, we don't have as much of that. We might have some ideas, but we know a lot more about ourselves because we haven't learned to inhibit it yet. If we want yeah. to go to cognitive neuroscience, we literally don't have the like neurological structures to inhibit it yet. We just yeah. have an emotional experience of ourselves. And so I always want to go back and tell my like eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old self, like, look, dude, you got it. Like, don't let anybody else tell you who you are and stop letting people, you know, explain your gender to you and stop letting the bullies like make you feel like you have to be somebody else because you don't. Um, and I think that's what I would tell any young person is like, if you, if you have a sense of yourself, run with it. I don't care if people tell you that you're wrong or tell you that you don't know or you're too young to know they are too old to know <laughs> is really the reality is they have they have crusted through that executive function of inhib inhibition and they only know how to inhibit they don't know how to engage with their emotions and you do so engage with them i love that i think that that's advice that really resonates with anyone regardless of what you're going through is there anything else that i haven't asked you that <laughs> that you want to address no, I think we covered a lot of really relevant things. I think the only thing that, I'd always, that I always want to share uh, is resources. So if anybody mm -hmm. who's listening needs to contact me, um, hopefully you can include my email and yes. my, my links and stuff. But um, mm -hmm. I offer 30-minute video chat support sessions to folks specifically aimed at LGBTQ youth who don't have the resources. They are pay as you can, which means if you can't, it's free. Um, and I also offer that to like parents and to other people around LGBTQ folks. It's not just queer folks. It's just, that's a, a specialty of mine. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I really encourage people to use that resource if they need. Um, and the links will be attached to this podcast. Thanks Lovely. for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and chat. I know as we we're talking, clearly you, you have a crazy schedule, especially in this time of everything is virtual and a lot of your meetings are virtual as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and talk. For those listening, I hope you all enjoyed this and found it as inspiring as I did, truly. I'm just so lucky to know you personally and have you in my life, but I think even people that don't know you or know you through your social media platforms. You are such a positive influence to so many people. And I know so many people look up to you. So I appreciate all that you do. Um, and I appreciate you as a friend as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. And I, you know, you've been one of the biggest supports for me through college. So I, I love, it's love to have this conversation. Glad to be able to um, connect in this way. So thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for listening today. This has been another episode of the Kentucky Resilience Lab. Make sure to check out the episode description for more information about Skylar 
including where to find him on social media and important resources for you or for someone you may know. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on Instagram at KYResLab to be sure you don't miss any episodes.